you. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. You can grab your seat. Thanks, guys, unless you, you know, do the quiet play behind like some of the American preachers. I don't know which you do. I've always wanted to have that, a little bit of organ music or something. Build up, you know, get a bit of build. <sighs> Great to be here. Healthy church, by the way, you're in. I don't know whether you know. Because I, I get to go around a bit, I'm not actually busy. I just like my Instagram to look busy. And, uh, but generally, I just work one day a week, you know, Sundays. Uh, and so uh, for me, I get to see a lot of churches. I very quickly can pick up healthy churches. And I, I want to tell you why you're a healthy church. First of all, this is, I've only been here all of 10 minutes, um, but I can tell a few things. Number one, naturally friendly people. Tick. Uh, what else? And a mix of ages from young to older. <laughs> Don't say old. Older. Mature is another way to say it. Uh, what else? Uh, an atmosphere of faith. When we sang that song we sang, which I believe is a homegrown song, and I, heard, I listened and watched faith rise in the room. That's a good, that's a healthy sign. That there, that you lifted, something lifted. I don't get that in all the churches I go. Sometimes it goes backwards when people sing. <laughs> Went up when you sang that song. It's a good thing. And of course, just when I thought it couldn't get any healthier, the senior pastor got on stage and cried. And I just, to me, I thought, this is it. It's the perfect church right there. You know, whenever the senior pastor cries, can't, can't get her words out, is a great morning in church. There. So, yeah, I did. I led a church in Wollongong. Who knows Wollongong and who's been? I know, it's terrible, isn't it, Wollongong? Beautiful beaches. I live five minutes from the beach, five minutes from the mountains. Don't come. It's not worth it. It's terrible. Down there. I've grown up there all my life. I went to move to Dubbo once. Because I used to be a carpenter and a builder. They call it the messianic complex, you know, trying to be like Jesus. And uh, we nearly went to move out west and I was so far from the ocean that I'm just like, no way am I living out here without being that close to the ocean. I love it. But I led a church. Listen, this is the deal. I was at Lighthouse since I was 11 years of age. I pastored the church that I grew up in. I was the youth pastor, volunteer, uh, while I was a builder, carpenter. And then uh, I married the pastor's daughter, which is how you get the church. <laughs> I always say, don't worry about anointing or gifting. It's overrated. Find the pastor's daughter, marry her. And if you hang around long enough, they give you the church, which is what happened to me. And so we were senior pastors there for 22 years or something. And, uh, but I was in the church for 44 years. So when you've already done the maths on my age, right? So uh, some of you, some of you don't do maths. Uh, and so I was there for a long time. So when we handed over last year, uh, literally almost this time last year, it was a big thing for us. Uh, and we did it for one reason, because actually we heard the Lord say very clearly to us that it was time for us, me particularly, uh, Annette has retrained, she's a professional supervisor now, she looks after, I create the problems for the pastors and she fixes them for pastors and chaplains and Christian leaders. And so uh, we got one clear word and that is it's time, Paul and Annette, it's time for you to help the church, not just a church. And I, can't, I haven't got time today, but we had a miraculous journey on how that all unfolded. And uh, with literally, I spent all of last year in front of my church crying because I didn't want to leave, but I was being obedient to the Lord. And I, I, just to be 
you know, up front. I think Annette was ready to go. She's been there her whole life. She was the pastor's daughter. Then when she married me, I was a carpenter. She thought she'd escaped. And after we got married, I said, by the way, I want to go into ministry, which she didn't like. And so I think she was ready to go after a couple of years. So this is how it went last year. We're sitting on stage talking about us leaving in handover. I would burst out crying. And Annette's, she's the one doing, there, there, Paul, it's okay. You know, she's, a, she's already, she, you know, she left two years ago, clearly. And, but uh, it's my great joy to get around as many churches as I can around the ACC. We mustn't forget, not just New South Wales, but ACT. You know, we're going to add that in there. I said to the guys last night, I said, ACT is like the Tasmania of New South Wales. And we just keep forgetting that they're there. But uh, sorry if you're from Canberra here today. It's good to have a bit of a laugh in church, isn't it? You know, at Lighthouse, one of our values, we had many values, very spiritual ones like Bible and the Word and prayer, uh, hospitality is one. But did you know the other one was laughter? We made sure that every, every event we ever did, every time we ever got together, we would ask ourselves a question, and how is it today that we're going to laugh? I'm hoping God is a laughing God because otherwise, not only did I waste that value, but I've wasted much of my life. The only way I think you get through life is to laugh at it sometimes and even laugh at ourselves if that's okay from time to time. I want to share with you a thought. I've written a couple of books. I'll talk about them later. But really, if you've ever written anything like a book, I'm not really an author. I, I, I didn't think I was author when I wrote one. I've written two, so probably that makes me an author. But what I do is I just have to write down the annoying thoughts that God gives me. In fact, I write them down because they will not leave me alone until I can get them out of me. And so today's a mix of a few thoughts uh, that I, I guess I've been thinking over the past few years. One of them is this, and the ACC guys know that I've talked a little bit about this thought. What will the 2070 church say of the 2023 church? Or better still, what will they say of the 2020 church, the 2019 church, the 2021 church? Because they're not going to talk about the 2018 church, nothing happened. But they're definitely going to talk about the 2020 church. And my hope is that they would say of us that thank God for the 2020s church. Because in a season of change, they rethought a whole range of things. And they emerged out of the other side of it, not the same, but thinking differently about the way they reach people. You know, Lighthouse, uh, if you've ever heard of it or know of it, certainly known in our city, on any given week, we knew that we would reach six times the amount of people midweek than attended church on Sunday. It's intentional. We be, literally built a church, I'm not joking, and the research backed it up. We literally built a church that our city can't live without. For 17 years, I was the chaplain of an NBL basketball team, the Hawks. I was the short guy in the room. If that interests none of you, my last season in the Hawks, uh, we had Lamello, who now plays for the Hornets in the NBA. Some of you just came alive in that moment right there. Uh, and I watched the face of basketball change in that moment. People who could not care less about basketball, uh, mainly uh, hundreds of screaming teenage girls, turned up at the basketball not remotely interested in the game, but desperately in the bleachers, trying to get themselves a long-shot selfie of them and Lamello, who was down in the front. My experience is this, that over the many years that I was at Lighthouse, in fact, two years in, I recalibra recalibrated my um, uh, job so that 80% of my working life as senior pastor was in the community every week. In fact, I was only in my office for 22 years. I was only in my office four hours a week. I turned up Sunday, so it looked like I was the pastor. But the rest of the week, I was involved in and around lost people. My passion, I love you, but I'd much rather be with lost people. 
And I think the challenge is not that people don't want to know God or faith. The challenge is we don't know how to communicate it sometimes. And uh, we have a church world and then we have our world. If you ask me how we changed our church uh, so that it could be a church that our city can't live without, I essentially, it wasn't about programs. I essentially taught everybody in the church that what you do on Monday is your God-given call. That you never have to leave your job to do mine to feel spiritual. Yeah. Might talk about that later. But I want to talk about something that's been my heart, mainly because I've got young adult children and particularly my beautiful young daughter who got married last year. How rude. <laughs> Thought she's going to stay with me the rest of her life. She, and not only that, she married a guy taller than me. Six foot eight. Can't pick on him. He's big, huge. And uh, so I think about raising my kids, even as young adults in the world they live in. Soph's uh, a fourth year law student, wants to work in human rights and uh, in the UN. And I think about, can she contextualise the gospel she hears on Sunday into a working world on Monday? And I had this thought, I was with a group of young adults at the end of last year, and it triggered a thought. Somebody said, we love the inspiration of our church. We love the inspiration. Like last night was incredible. I was at Youth Alive. That was an inspiring night. But the challenge they said they had was they weren't sure how to have an intellectual gospel or an intelligent gospel and I want to talk today about the intelligent gospel it's not enough that we give our emerging generation an inspirational gospel we must also give them an intelligent gospel one that they can speak about in their universities one that they can talk about in context of the world in which they live uh, this is what I think as we begin to, and I've created a forum in New South Wales of young adults speaking on this topic if we had an intelligent gospel what would it look like? And I think these are some of the attributes of the intelligent gospel. Number one, it's the ability to be bilingual, fluent in the world and Bible. It's not enough that you can quote every scripture. It's not enough that you sound spiritual. What you also have to do is interpret that into the world in which you live. I, every year, uh, have the privilege of speaking in Europe, you know, Europe missions, you know, a chance for a pastor to get away, have a break, missions. And uh, we do that, we've been doing that 10 years, we've planted 35 churches right throughout Eastern Europe, raise up young adult leaders and plant them. Anyway, I was there this year, and as I was doing this message in Germany on stage, it dawned on me that this dynamic where I've got a translator, interpreter, is a perfect example of what we're trying to say. So I said to the room, I said, and I could say it today to you, I, 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 I've already described the healthiness of this church, so I'm going to assume that you're full of the power of God. And I said this to the Germans, I said, what about we do this today? You're full of the power of God, got the Holy Spirit in you, and so you're spiritual. I'm full of the power of God, I'm spiritual. My translator's spiritual, but here's what, we, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the faith to believe that we don't need him. In fact, you can take your seat. Go and sit down. I made him sit down. And I continued my message in English to a room full of Germans. And I spoke for about, I spoke long enough that it got so awkward I could tell they were, wanted to scream in German, get him back. <laughs> we don't have a clue what you're saying because here's the thing. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are unless you can translate it, it's no good. And sometimes I hear us say to the next generation, all you need is, 
All you need is the power of God. All you need is revival. All you need, and I get that. I know what we're saying. And of course, that's true at one level. But actually, it can also be dismissive or in place of a strategy. See, I think the emerging generation don't just need to hear all you need is the power of God. They need to be equipped with a strategy to have a voice. It's not enough. And I think, I've, and I say this to ACC pastors regularly and it goes a bit quiet. I say, I think you constantly tell your people all you need is, is because you don't have the courage to go and seek God for a strategy to equip a new generation. Yeah, that's kind of the response I get actually, just like that. <laughs> And so we have at the moment AI. Everyone's talking about it. What about if we have the new AI, authentic intelligence? Oh, that's going to get upsetting before I read a scripture. I'm going to read a Chinese proverb. If you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. It has no clue it's in water. I go fishing. Uh, and I think to myself, on the rare occasion I pull a fish out of the water, I think to myself, this fish in my boat, for the first time in its life, has noticed there's another world other than the one it's living in. It's breathing my air, but not its air, and it, does know what not, it doesn't know what to do with it. And I suggest to you, if all we do is churchify Christians, or if all we do is teach our young people how to do church well, but not how to do the world well. Here's another one. We need to contextualize the gospel, integrated and designed for your life sphere. I said it before, I say it again, your job is already spiritual. Your university, wherever you find yourself midweek, it's already spiritual because jobs aren't spiritual. Who you do it for is. It's not spiritual superiority. It's more akin to street smarts. You know, one of the things we did for 30 plus years is take young people off the street and put them through our program. In fact, in 30 years, we helped over 2,000 young people come off the street. And one of the things I loved about them were they were the best people to send back onto the street once they were saved. Not because they were superior, but because they understood the streets in which they lived in. They knew how to share the gospel to, to their kind, to the tribe that they came from. Hey, the intelligent gospel gives you the thinking, the language, the tone, and the timing to stay in the important conversations. Did you know the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing? It is. Did you know the right thing in the wrong context is the wrong thing? You know, as I said, I was just in Europe, and this time I spoke 40 times in four countries. When I was preparing the trip, I said to my wife, Annette, I said, honey, do you want to come to Europe with me? She said, how many times are you speaking? I said, 40. She says, no. <laughs> how rude is that? 35 years of marriage. She doesn't want to hear me incessantly. <laughs> so she didn't come. She said, but I'll come for that bit at the end called the holiday. So she did that. But the first week while I was over there by myself, seven days, and you know, it's like jet lag, can't sleep. Anyway, I get like seven days in and I finally have my first full night's sleep. It was wonderful, 10 hours of sleep. And I FaceTime my wife and as we got on FaceTime, she says to me, she says, Paul, I just had the worst night's sleep I've had 
in weeks. She said, I don't think I slept at all. I said, well, guess what, honey? Good news. I slept 10 hours last night. It was wonderful. I said, I can't tell you how good I feel after 10 hours sleep. She said, what are you telling me that for? I said, because it's good news. She said, well, it's not good news to me. Just because it's good news to you, and you didn't think about the timing, the context, or the environment to which you're saying, it doesn't make it good news. In fact, it could be worse. It could make it bad news. I would often tell my church, don't bring your friend to church unless they're ready. You disciple them first and then bring them here. Because if you bring them before they're ready, you may lose them for three years. What if you've been working for a year to invite your friend to church because you believe the only pathway that people get saved is coming on Sunday and that old preacher message that wins them to Christ? So you, when you finally get them here, it takes a year. You've coughed up enough courage. They get here. You sit with them towards the back. You're hoping everything goes well. And you, without knowing, un, you didn't realize that Paul is about to preach and start his series on tithing. <laughs> and they're sitting there going, that is exactly what I thought the church was about. <laughs> All your eggs in one basket. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform to the patterns and behaviours of this world, but instead let God transform you by changing the way you think. That's why I wrote Rethink It. Unlearning how you think to reach a changing world that's thinking less about church. What I live in thinks a lot about God, not always church, not because the church is wrong, bad, or they shouldn't come to it. It's just they're not ready for it because it's a different culture. And so I want to encourage you that, did you know that we believe often what the world tells us, that in order to grow as a person, you have to add more knowledge to your already knowledge. I'm going to suggest to you becoming the person God wants you to be is you probably have to unlearn what you currently know and relearn what God's been trying to teach you. In other words, it's impossible to grow if all you ever do is add knowledge upon knowledge. Most of, just like Jesus did with his disciples, is rethinking what you love, what you know, what you cherish, what you don't want to let go. Rethinking that so the Holy Spirit can give you his thoughts. Rethinking. As I said, Soph, she's 22, married, um, hopefully producing children soon. Which I remind her every time I see her. I just had my third grandchild. I know. Did anybody just think then, how could this guy, this young guy be such... A, did anybody think that, how you, I could be a grandfather? Just, could somebody lie? Thank you. Yeah, that's important. Ben, I used to say that a lot, you know, a few years ago. And I get a lot of hands. I don't get as many hands these days. Just strange. Little Wilbur was born three weeks ago. Wilbur Bear. What is wrong with you at this generation, the way they name their children? <laughs> Wilbur Bear, goodness me. Anyway, nothing, nothing to do with me. So, Soph, she's 22. She's a fourth-year law student. And I think about Soph. This is why I think about this. And I think Sophie loves church. She still goes to the church that I led. Uh, my grandkids go there as well. But I think unless Sophie gets an intelligent gospel... She will come to church Sunday, be inspired, but go to work Monday like it's a job. 
But Sophie's supposed to be inspired on Sunday, equipped, and go to work Monday like it's a calling. We can't have Christians doing jobs. There's no jobs. There's only callings. And you've been placed where God has you, not to earn money, but it's your mission field. It's where God's called you to be. And so I think about Soph and I think, have I been the kind of father, has our church been the kind of leader where Sophie gets that she wakes up Monday into a calling where God's using her to make a difference in whatever she chooses? Has anyone ever been to, the, to Kenya and the Masai Mara, that, uh, you know, the guys that, the, the African guys that jump, make great basketballers, those guys. Well, I had the privilege on one of those mission trips I did a few years ago after the mission trip to go and do a, um, uh, what do they call it? Like an African safari, I guess is what they call it. And so we were out to see the big five, you know, the rhinos, the elephants and blah, blah, blah. And we, we saw all that. But what was fascinating to me was the Maasai warriors and listening and watching to what they do. Now, I don't know whether it's the real thing or they just see the tourists coming and they get out of their normal clothes and put the, the tribal clothes on. Who knows? Whatever. I'm not fussed. It was good for me. But here's a few things. And, and I, I had completely forgotten about that. That was 10 years ago. And I don't know about you, but I, this is the way God talks to me. I, I can hear God say to me things like this, Paul, um, I'm about to take you down. I'm about to show you something or remind you of something that's very familiar but I'm about to teach you something you've never seen out of something you always have seen. God teaches you from what you know about what you don't yet know. That's why you don't just need a church environment. It's why God speaks to you at work because He does like He did with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I'm going to speak to you, but first I want you to go down to the potter's house. When you get there, I will talk to you. But if you read the story, God waits till He watches the potter. It's something that everybody has seen and watched and understands what's going on here. And after he watches it, he gives him a message about God's people. I want you to know that God wants to take what you do tomorrow. And if you're willing to listen to him, he's going to take what you do every day, but he's going to teach you something, get you to unlearn what you know through what you already know, something you've never seen before. So here I am, minding my own business end of last year, thinking about this thought. I felt like the Lord said, Paul, remember when you went to the Masai Mara? I said, yeah, Lord, am I going on mission again? <laughs> no. He said, I want you to think about what you saw. So I began to think about it. And as I, think, I thought about it, I realised something that I'd never noticed, but now I notice, and that's this. That when we were with the Masai warriors, they showed us through their little huts, so they had their little clay huts that they stayed in at night. They talked about how the, uh, to become a man, you had to kill a lion with a spear. They taught us how to do that. You want to know, by the way, because you never know, Penrith, you never know when there's going to be a lion. And so he, did you know this is what they did? That they recognised that when the lion ran at you, just as the lion leapt towards you, it closed its eyes. Handy tip, right? And when it closes its eyes, that's when you throw the spear. Can you imagine how many little Maasai it took to figure that out? <laughs> that very first guy. Hey, looky. Ah! Four or five later, the message got through. And finally that fifth guy is like, 
hey, I think he's saying he closes his eyes. But took five little dead Maasai guys there to get to that. That's how my brain thinks. Here's, here's what I saw. See, after the day of being with the Maasai guys out with the big five, with pretty much any animal that could kill you, we all went back to the comfort of our motels. We could see through the glass the wildlife, but the Maasai warrior, they never went back. They stayed in their little clay huts. And I thought to myself, somewhere in their culture, somewhere over hundreds of years of culture, they made an intelligent decision. Decision. They wanted to live free because they could have built buildings that kept out the wildlife, but they said to themselves, no, we're going to learn how to live amongst the wildlife. And that's what they did. And I want to suggest to you that we need to take a generation, instead of teaching them how to retreat into safety, we need to teach them how to live amongst the wildlife. Guess what? A few of them aren't going to make it. I was telling a group of young adults this recently, and they're like, looking at me like, you mean some of us might die? So you better believe it. Did you know that in Australia right now, if you go to one of our universities and you're a Christian, you have a 67% chance of abandoning your faith by the time you finish your degree? That's our fault because we haven't taught them how to live amongst. Because they're going to go to university, they must. We should spend our time training them how to live in a university. Yeah, there's a risk. Yeah, there's a few lines. There's a few things that want to leap out them. But here's how you learn to live amongst the wildlife and flourish. My favorite scripture, John 1.14. So the word became human and made his home among us. Love that scripture. Love the message version. The word became human and moved into the neighborhood. The word moved into the neighborhood. I've got a question for you. If God became human to reach the world, how on earth did we end up with a separate spiritual culture? We talk differently. We got the kind of jargon. I, I can tell you, we spent we spent over ten years de-jargonizing our church. In fact, we have a rule that we will never say anything on Sunday that we couldn't say on Monday to anybody we meet. In fact, we wrote a document. We, this is where we laughed. This wasn't serious. We didn't get all religious about it. We for six months laughed our heads off on the jargon words we say and how how much they don't mean anywhere else. And we said we made a commitment. We took the top 100 words and phrases that we say on Sundays and we said, how could we say that in human? <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird that we have to do that, right? But that's what we said. We said, how do we take glory? The glory of the Lord's here. It's a wonderful phrase. It's probably true. But if you don't know God and in this nation of ours who got no clue, it means nothing to know that the glory of God is on you. But you could say this, because the glory means God's character, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy. You could say, isn't it great that God's compassion and mercy and kindness is here today? It's the same thing, but it's just inhuman. You okay? I've got a softer message I could do if you. 
bit late though, I'll go long. <laughs> when I was um, thinking about this idea of intelligent gospel, I did what any good pastor would do. I, I wanted to find out who, who does the Bible mention is intelligent in the Bible, so I googled it. And uh, there's only one person. There's a few wise, there's a few uh, knowledgeable, a few handsome, a few beautiful. There's only one. The Bible said it was intelligent. I've got good news, ladies. There's a woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for this next six minutes or so, ladies, you're going to invite me to your women's conference. <laughs> Just on this bit alone. Abigail, the Bible says, according to 1 Samuel 25, talks about Nabal, her husband, not very well, by the way. He says his name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was a doofus. (laughs) Imagine having that as your... Imagine being written down for hundreds of years as the husband. That's what you're known as. Your wife's beautiful, intelligent, and you're an idiot. Surly and mean. I mean, come on, man. Get a life. Surly and he's surly and mean, but not her. And here's the thing. See, as I said, the Bible will call women beautiful and men handsome. But it did, this, this author didn't accidentally call Abigail intelligent. The, the author called Abigail intelligent because he saw something about her that he said that woman was intelligent. And I want to talk about that briefly because if you, let's not get there for long, but just so you know the story. David and his men were out in Nabal's field, not far from his town, and they were just resting out there. And David had a bit of a reputation. He was a fighter and he'd had a a reputation to win battles. And so while David was out there, he actually looked after Nabal's shepherds. He protected them and they were nice to them. So David, rightly or wrongly, he thinks when he's passing through Nabal's town, he thinks, why don't we get Nabal just to look after us for a couple of nights when we're in town, food, lodging, etc. So David sends his messenger in. The messenger gives that to Nabal. This is why he's mean and surly. Nabal instantly puts his chest out. Who on earth does that David think he is? Coming into my town. Like I'm going to feed him and clothe him and who does he do? No, tell him to boot off. That's what he does. Guess what? David is no better. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that both those men are relationally unintelligent. So the messenger comes back and tells David the news. Guess what David does? He does exactly the same thing. He sticks out his chest and says, oh, I can't. All right, boys, he says to his, right up, boys, get together, get your swords. We're going in. Come on, men. There are other ways to solve problems, by the way. Thank God for women in leadership. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go there for a little bit. I'm a huge advocate for women in leadership, senior women in leadership. I have on my state team two women. I wouldn't have it anyone. I would hate to be on a team of just men. Here's why. Because men make different decisions when women aren't on the team. Oh, I love the quietness when I talk about this. It's great. There's quiet and then there's awkward quiet. It's my favourite place. 
God made women because they have an intelligence, particularly relationally, to situations that men, we by default, rear up and put the sword on, ready to go. I do it all the time. I can see myself when I feel my respect or, my, or another bloke has said something. I, could, I can feel the chest go up. I can, if I owned a sword, I'd get one. You know, I can feel all that going on, but not Abigail. You know what Abigail did? She goes to one of the shepherds and says, is it true? Did David look after you? The shepherd guy goes, yeah, of course he did. He was great. Now, I don't want to, it's not a marriage session, but I'm going to give you one for free. Just when you're about to have that argument, find out the other half of the story. Get your facts. Go and talk to the other party, the other side. So then she hears that David was nice. So she then gets offerings and gifts and food and and she goes all the way out to David and apologises on behalf of Doofus. And the author says, no nudging the person next to you while I'm saying that stuff, you know. And the, the author believes that as a result of that, she's intelligent. So as we finish today, let me tell you why I think she's intelligent and why it will help you reach this world that you live in. Firstly, she first understood before she spoke. Do you know the power? It's, what do I do? Everybody gets, I'm the national leader for community engagement right here. I help, I don't do 300 churches. I help over a thousand churches think differently about how they reach their community. And everybody wants to get me in the room because they think I'm going to give them great programs. It's not about programs. It's about thinking. It's how you think about the community you live in. And here's what I've learned. No understanding, no relationship, no voice. You can shout the gospel all you like. But if you're not willing to understand the people in your world before you speak, they'll nod, but they're not listening. You know, I've shared this at ACC a few times because I want to model healthy pastoring. But I've often said this, you know, I only ever went to counselling for the first time when I was 40 years of age. I've been in leadership non-stop, non-stop since I was 11 years of age in our church. I was some little sub-leader or something, I don't know what they called me. Nerd leader, I don't know. So I'd never stopped leading. The problem in leadership culture in church is you feel like you can't tell your problems because might, you mightn't be allowed to be a leader again. And you know, I'm 11, right? I'm 12, I'm 13. And so... I, I just never, I grew up in a culture where I, wasn't, I thought I wasn't allowed to share my problems, which is really unhealthy, by the way, particularly for pastors. So I've got so much stuff going on in my life. I finally go to counselling at 40 years of age. I'm 56. So I book in. I've got a one-hour session. I just go, bleh. In fact, I went for two hours. I'd stored 40 years up. And I can tell you, honestly, in that moment, there was, there was something, just because of the culture, I thought after I go blur, I was absolutely convinced that the counsellor was going to say this to me. I thought he was going to say, Paul, I cannot believe you had that sort of attitude. 
I cannot believe you said those things, did those things. You needed to shape up or ship out. That's what I honestly thought he was going to say. This is what he said to me. He says, oh, Paul, I completely understand. No wonder you feel that way. I had never heard that in my life. That somebody understood me. Understood me. Do you know how powerful it is to be understood? Did you know in all that sin, and as I watch, I'm right at the forefront of all we do, with all the uh, sexuality and gender and transgender and all that that goes on. And I know we, we don't know what to do with that. We want to say something about all that. But actually, if you go behind that, sin is a lot of brokenness. And a generation first just want to be understood. Did you know you can understand somebody without agreeing with them? Understood. You know, for 17 years as the chaplain for very tall men, uh, for sure, two things I think made me a successful chaplain. Number one was my ability to be teased. If you want to work with non-Christians and you're precious, or easily offended, it's not gonna work. They loved to tease me. What they didn't know is I'm pretty good teaser back actually, which also messed with them. The second thing is, was I always sought to understand first. So my coffees, my lunches with them, my goal was never to try and give them answers or even convert them. My goal was always to understand them. And I went from, if you know my story, day one, the coach, I went through five coaches in 17 years and hundreds of players. Day one, the coach said, Rev, I've got, I just want to give you your job description. I said, oh yeah, cool, great. Stay out of my way. Like, how rude is that? I don't need to come here. I can go to my own church to hear that. I don't need to come here. <laughs> sometimes I just got to go home to hear that. And I was slightly offended, but I heard the Lord say, Paul, it's not about you, it's about them. And you know, here's what happened. I started in 17 years, you fast forward 17 years. By the way, for 17 years, including while I was state president, I was the water boy and sweat wiper upper. It's a joke around. You can watch me live on Fox Sport anytime. You probably won't see my face. You'll see my backside. Because the players, they never handed me their water bottles. They dropped them on the floor and had those seat cover things. And I'm down there trying to get the water while Fox is on the rear end. Now I get my brother. My brother's text me. We can see your butt. We can see your butt. It's very classy, that sort of ministry. How releasing is it to be understood? That's what Abigail did. She went toward the so-called enemy. Nearly done. She went toward. You know, I know we don't call the world our enemy, but so much of what we do is they have to come to us. You know what changed our church? I taught my church this. We're going to find out what our community loves. We're going to go join them. We're not going to invite them to something and they have to find Christ. Here's a question. Is it possible for people in your world? Is it possible people in the Blue Mountains, in Penrith, is it possible for them to get saved if they never come to church? Is it possible? Or have we made this the only way? The truth is it's not Ben or Tim's responsibility to lead your friends to Christ, it's your responsibility. Now you could bring them and you can invite them, but ultimately they're your responsibility. She was generous and respectful. 
and she apologised, taking the blame for the misunderstanding, even though it was not her fault. She had that kind of humility. I wonder today what God's saying to you about an intelligent gospel and what it is that you might need to do, act or say in a way that you reach them. You know, as we finish today, real quick, thank God it's Monday's the story of uh, how we turned our church from literally when I took over, we'd been there 32 years already. I painted the building at the front and people would say to me, oh, how long have you been here? 32 years, didn't even know we existed. Uh, till just actually, I've been gone a year now and I just found out last year, last week, Lighthouse just won the most outstanding community organisation in the city. Wollongong is the 10th largest city in Australia. And it really uh, is not ultimately about just the gospel. It is, we see many people saved, but it was about credibility. And this is the story. If you're a, if you're a tradesman here today and you've unintentionally thought that today was the most spiritual day of the week, well, my goal as a preacher to you is to take the tradesman, the nurse, the teacher and teach you that the same presence of God that's here today is in your workplace on Monday. That the presence of God is seamless. It's not high on Sunday and low on Monday. If you're a tradie, if you do a regular job, don't buy it if you're a pastor. But if you're just a normal person doing a normal job, this will help you see your Mondays full of purpose. And lastly, I wrote this. I think it's time to rethink personally how we think about ourselves, how we speak to ourselves. So many people look in the mirror and tell themselves, I'm not worthwhile, I'm not valuable, I don't do much. Well, that's not how God sees you. You need to change the way you think. We need to change the way we think in terms of our language towards this world like we talked about today. There's a whole bunch of stuff there if you want to grab those. This one's the sequel to that one. So as a good salesman, you must buy two in order to get <laughs> context there as well. Trust me, they, they will help you. Can I pray for you as we finish today? Thanks for being so gracious with your time. I know I went a little bit over there, but uh, Father, I just thank you for every person here today. Every one of us designed by you. God, I pray over this room, the Monday prayer, Ephesians 2.10. I pray that Lord, and I speak over each one of these is your workmanship created to do good works that you said, Lord, in Christ that you have prepared in advance for us to do. So I pray that tomorrow morning they wake up not with the pressure of trying to do something for you, but simply with the ability to open their eyes and ears to the things you've already prepared for them to say and do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God.